0: Thank you, Pastor Daniel. Oh, kids' church, the youngest class can be dismissed. So Is going to accompany me here for a second. So I think uh, we were at a wedding yesterday, and uh, this young man, he spoke at the mic, and he was amazing. Uh, wasn't afraid, and I think one day he's going to actually be speaking to a lot of people. God's put some great things in him. Uh, you know, I, uh, I love living in the Fraser Valley. We live in such a beautiful area out here, it's amazing. We're like in such a great area that we are literally. It, from a short distance, we can go to snowy mountains, yeah. to sand dunes, yeah. to a rainforest, to the ocean, to a metropolis, to a farm. It's insane. It's insane. Uh, and in, in all truth, I'm probably a little bit more like Jacob than Esau, a man among the tents kind of thing, as opposed to the outdoor guy. But I've grown up with a lot of outdoors people. And I've come to appreciate some, especially in my family and stuff, uh, they like fishing. Uh, so I've grown up, if not a, as an avid fisherman, but at least as someone who appreciates fishing, especially when you catch something. More so when you catch something, actually. But, uh, but with fishing, you, you learn there's the fish story that comes along with it, too. <laughs> right. Whether it's what you've caught or what you've used to catch something or what's gotten away uh, there, there's a ton of great fishing stores. Do we have any fishermen here, actually, out of curiosity? Sort of? So. Wow. Okay. <laughs> we have outdoors people here? Okay, a lot of outdoors. No fishermen. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, there's a fishing story that kind of is one of the better ones I've heard. Uh, and that's, it actually belongs to God. <laughs> He's the only one I know, he actually uses a fish to catch a person, instead of a person trying to catch a fish. So we're going to turn today to the book of Jonah. And since Josiah's so I'm going to ask him, Josiah, what's Jonah about? Um, I don't know. <laughs> well, do you have an idea? Um,
1: I know that he gets eaten by a whale for three days.
0: That's very good. Very good. Why, why does he get eaten by a whale for three days?
1: Hmm?
0: Why does he get eaten?
1: Because he didn't listen to God.
0: So then what happens after, after the three days?
1: He never, does, he never does it again and does what God said.
0: Wow. think he learned his lesson there? Awesome. Thank you for sharing, Josiah. You want to take a seat now? Do you want to sit down? You want to stand up here? Okay. He's going to Sunday school. So I thought today we'd turn to the book of Jonah. You mind doing a little bit of Bible reading? Learning a little bit about Jonah? Good. Pastor David asked me a little while ago to look into it, and I've been looking into it for a little while, and, you know, Jonah is very much, uh, it's very fascinating. If you've grown up in the church, you, I'm sure you've, first of all, anybody familiar with Jonah? A lot of people familiar with Jonah. If I ask you what you're familiar with, what, what are you most familiar with? Anybody can shout it out. I know as much as your son. Okay, That's awesome. <laughs> That's true, and you're not far off from probably most people. I mean, the most common thing about Jonah is the great fish story, right? It's, it's the common thing in Sunday school, and, uh, and it, it is fascinating. It's a, it's a remarkable story. Uh, but I think often we actually don't really get past that part. So God puts a story about a guy and a fish. It's neat. What's that got to do with me? Uh, what actually does it have to do with anything else, aside from being a, a pretty neat story? Uh, so I thought we'd look at the book of Jonah today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Jonah one. if you haven't opened it. It's not a very big book. It's three chapters. Uh, four chapters, actually, sorry. And try to read through it a bit as we, uh, as we talk a little bit about what God's trying to say to us through Jonah today. Um, I don't know if it fell up past Dave. Can you take a copy of the notes I just gave you? Thank you. So, quick, a very quick introduction with Jonah. Jonah is a book among the minor prophets, if you haven't found it. Minor prophets, not in terms of the lesser prophets. Uh, none of the prophets are, are lesser than each other, but minor is it's a smaller book than the other books. Uh, but being a smaller book, it's still actually, I mean, you read it, it's a very simple book. It's very straightforward, in fact, it's surprisingly simple. In fact, that there's lots of stuff that seems to be left out. It seems very easy to read. But if you pay attention, there's a lot of complex thought there. Uh, I'm going to read the first couple of verses here. Jonah 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Tarsh, uh, tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish. We're going to struggle with that one. uh, To flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? So let's just stop there for a second and kind of catch up to speed a bit here. Uh, So first, a little bit of background. God gives this message to Jonah. Who is Jonah, first of all? Not a lot said about him, uh, except for the book. But he does actually appear in 2 Kings 14.25. His name means dove, and in that little scripture, just a really brief mention, it says, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Ham, in a reference of the word he gave from the Lord. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath, Heber. So we know that he's a servant of the Lord. We know that he hears from God. In fact, the remarkable thing about Jonah is he seems to be in such remarkable. Uh, relationship with God, that not only does he know God's voice, not only is he hearing God and able to recognize distinctly what God's saying, he's able to read between the lines. He has an intimate relationship with God. God says, uh, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, before I finish that thought, we got to What's the big deal about Nineveh? Where is Nineveh? What is it? Nineveh is not a Jewish city. Jonah is a Jewish prophet. Nineveh is not a Jewish city. In fact, Nineveh is about 500 miles, 500 plus miles away from where Jonah lives. Nineveh belongs to Assyria. At that time, Assyria is a world power. Uh, who is? Well, <laughs> they're rough <laughs> to say in the in the in a nice way. Um, Nineveh itself is the capital of Assyria. Now, a little bit about who the Assyrians of the time too, and I'm giving this. It's important to understand all of this. Assyria was uh, Nineveh itself was a big capital city. they had done excavations. They've got these big walls. It was a complex city. They were. Uh, they had multiple gods, and part of their theology is that they believed that their gods required them to conquer. In fact, if they didn't conquer, if they didn't make war, there would be an apocalypse, is the way I understand it. So they were driven, that they had to conquer. And when they conquered, they were brutal. They were brutal. In fact, they're known in history as being one of the most brutal people. And I'm going to give some illustration for this, to be honest. Uh, There's, for instance, an account of this this general who had conquered, and he took the bodies to make a bridge for his people. So they walked across the bodies, they would make, there's another story of this guy who comes uh, and sort of the ceremony He comes and they've got the skulls piled in heaps, they've got people impaled. They were known to take their uh, conquered one city and they had to grind the bone like grinding flour, grind the bones of so their dead. They would gouge out eyes, cut off noses. They would slice pregnant women, throw their babies up to the dice. Before we hit the ground, see how many times it could do it. Now does this offend you? Because it offended Jonah. See, when we read this, we've got some distance. This is a historical story. But for Jonah, this was a very present reality of a nation that was on their border threatening him, very literally. In fact, not many years after Jonah's time, Assyria would come in and they would wipe out Israel. They would take the 10 tribes, deport them, mix them, and we have what's called the 10 Lost Tribes of Israel now. And Judah was left over. So Israel was a major threat, a brutal, wicked people who showed no mercy and were driven to conquer. And Nineveh is their capital with their king, who also acts as a bit of a prophet too for these people. So God comes to Jonah and says, I want you, this, this Jewish guy, to leave your, the Jewish area and go preach against it. Now, what's remarkable is what Jonah hears. When I hear preach against it, what do, you, what do I assume? Well, Judgment yeah. against the people who deserves it. What does Jonah hear? Yeah. Mercy. He's in such an intimate relationship with God that he knows he's reading beyond the lines. He knows God well enough that God's going to extend mercy. And he does something very remarkable. He disobeys. And he does it oddly enough, and this is going to be weird, so I've got to make this clear. He actually disobeys out of faith. <laughs> now, I need to make this clear. His disobedience is sin. And this is where I struggled a bit because I thought always equated, well, if it's sin, then there's somewhere a lack of faith or, uh, I mean, faith, how can you have faith and sin at the same time? Yet, oddly enough, he believes God, believes in God enough in knowing God that God will enact what he's intending to do that it causes Jonah to run. He has faith in who God is and in his character enough to say, I don't want that. <laughs> and he doesn't argue with God. That's another point. It says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord. It doesn't say he gets into a discussion. He doesn't give a polemic, an argument. There's no... Uh, there's nothing. He runs. No words. Not even by, just runs. He re- recognizes that God is asked them not to condemn, but to save. So he heads to Tarshish, the thing I'm struggling with here. Another time, to them, it's the farthest geographical point he can get to. They figure it's maybe around southern Spain. They know the word of God hasn't reached that area, so he's trying to escape God. He's trying to get away. He's a prophet of God, and he knows that by doing this, first of all, Essentially, he's disqualifying himself, or at least he believes he's disqualifying himself. He's getting out of the job. The travel to Tarshish is estimated to take about three years. So, and it says (laughs) he found a ship, so he's looking for the ship. (laughs) And then after paying the fare, that fare is not cheap. He may have actually had to hire the whole ship. The ship likely was a cargo ship And Tarshish was likely a mining colony, too. So it's taking cargo supplies over to this place. He's kind of desperate, but yet he's so at peace with his decision, possibly some exhaustion, that he goes into the ship and falls into a deep sleep. He's got no anxiety about this. No trouble sleeping. He's in a deep sleep. He's made his decision to obey, or to disobey. He's got his rationale. He's good with it. God will find someone else. Someone else will take care of it. I'm disqualified. I'm done. Do we ever do that? (laughs) Uh, You know, he's trying to flee from the Lord. Somehow his beliefs and his understanding, his experience, isn't meshing first of all. God is in covenant with Israel. Assyria is the enemy of Israel. And he's sending a Jewish prophet in relation, covenant covenantal relationship with God to go save this murderous, butchering people. So a storm comes. Actually, it says in that God sent a great wind. It's in the, in the language he hurls this great wind. And all the sailors are afraid. Each cries out to his own God. They don't believe in their gods like we believe in ours, first of all. Their gods are, are much smaller, kind of like confined to individual attributes, gods of nature and, and that such thing. So they don't necessarily know which gods... Co- There's a problem. This isn't an ordinary storm. These are sailors... They're used to the storms, they're terrified, something's wrong. It's, it's got to be something uh, God-related or a God-related, so we've got to figure out what's the problem here. So they start asking people about their gods, and they're starting to call on their gods, not necessarily for any kind of repentance, it's more assistance. Like, maybe my God can somehow get in connection with the God that needs to be, and he can help us out. Maybe somehow we've got a, a way out. They're desperate. So they get to Jonah. Jonah's sleeping. The captain of the ship is trying to rescue his people in his ship. The prophet of God is sleeping. Not so concerned. And he wakes up Jonah, you call on your God. Uh, it doesn't say Jonah calls on his God. And oddly enough, it's the same message that God first gave him get up. God says in the beginning, get up and go. The captain says, get up. <laughs> Twice Jonah's been told to get up. Uh, so they start asking about it. I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, a great theological answer. They know he's running, but suddenly it, it, things start clicking. It's your God. <laughs> and when he describes who God is, suddenly God goes from being some little territorial God to the God who made the land and the sea. It's an awesome statement. And to be honest, I think in this journey, though, which is fascinating, though Jonah knows God, though he has an intimate relationship with God, though he's able to read between the lines, hear his voice, he's had his word uh, spoken to him before and enacted in Israel, he's got a relationship. God has continued to reveal himself to Jonah. Jonah. He doesn't know God the way he thinks he knows God yet. What's more fascinating is he knows God to a point, but it's discovered his heart isn't in line with God's. Though he's a servant to God, and he's classified and marked as a servant to God. Though he loves God, though he's willing to be used by God and has been used by God, his heart is not in line with God's. So what's really remarkable about Jonah at this point is Jonah, even though it's, it's in the minor prophets, it's not a book about the prophecy. In fact, it's only of the prophet, prophet books that aren't focused on the prophecy as much as it is on the prophet, God's relationship with Jonah. And it's counted in the books because it reveals who God is, his character. It's a very powerful book. If you've not read it before, I'm sure you have, but it's worth rereading. And um, as I mentioned before, I think we sometimes act like Jonah. It's you know, not my calling, not my gifting, not my passion, not my purpose, not my job description. Let someone else go. God doesn't need me. If I don't step up, he'll get someone else. I mean, Jonah heard. He knew God. He could think of theological reasons probably to dismiss the claim. If he doesn't, he just runs. I'm gone. So God uses a storm and a fish to lead a man to repentance, and then ironically uses a stormy, fishing-smelling man to lead a city to repentance. <laughs> Jonah's three-year voyage becomes a three days and nights in a fish, and possibly three days in Nineveh. So what happens? The storm comes. we to Jonah uh, 1 verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered, the sacrifice, offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. It's a little bit more of a peek inside to Jonah here. Jonah is very, it appears at least, uh, justice driven. Very justice driven. And you know what? In some ways, he's got reasons to be that way. He loves God, he's got the stories of the Old Testament. He knows God extends mercy. He doesn't want mercy for Assyria. Why? Because they don't deserve it. They rightly deserve wrath. Very rightly. Now, even though we, there's no story of Jonah being directly affected by the Assyrians, it's, it's highly possible that he's got countrymen who have been. Even if there's times of peace, there's still stories, and there's still the ongoing threat. And there's a story of... Stories of what's happened to the people around him. I was trying to think of any kind of parallel we could pull. And I was thinking, realistically, for a modern-day parallel, like Nineveh was in the area of Iraq, northern Iraq. So for maybe today you could think of ISIS. Now, it's different. Assyria is more brutal than ISIS. But ISIS is sort of an, an odd parallel to this. And ISIS is on the borders of these places threatening them. And these people are living with this constant threat. And they have every reason to say ISIS needs to die. Wiped out. God's wrath upon them. Every reason. Jonah had the same thing with Assyria. Every reason. See, it gets to the fish, and is willing to die for justice for his people. And to avoid his responsibility, too. <laughs> right. that's, that's the bonus. <laughs> right? As a prophet of God, he recognizes that by disobeying, not only is he disqualified, in the midst of the storm, I get it. I gotta die. God's judgment against me is death, of sin, a fallen short of the glory. The wages of sin are death. So he recognizes, I've got to die. He doesn't call it for mercy. At that point for him, he's in the midst of the storm. There's no mercy to be had. It's death. And I guess I don't have to go to Syria now anyway, so. <laughs> the sailors, they, they're not quick to comply here, even though they're panicked. Now, maybe part of the rationale is they're thinking, if we throw him over, his god's this angry now, things are going to get worse. But they they try to save him. They try to save themselves. They're not quick to comply with throwing him over. But they get into a situation that they've got nothing else to do. And so at the risk of their own lives, they've already thrown out their cargo. They've done what they can do. They're in danger. All right? And they pray to God. Now, to, to them, God may be just another God among many gods. But he's obviously stirring up trouble. <laughs> and they're in it, so we've got we to do at least something to appease him or call out to him. So they throw Jonah into the water. It gets calm. And... They offer a sacrifice on the ship. Maybe that means they mark it every year. I don't know. But they acknowledge that there's something here. God may be a God among many gods to them. It doesn't say they get, come into relationship with him. It doesn't say they accept him as their only God. But he suddenly becomes very different and marked between any other God that they've ever known. And they worship him. Jonah's in the water, and he's sinking. Jonah chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer. Now, it says from inside the fish, but he talks about kind of what's happened up to that point. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O oh Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah to dry land. When you're in Sunday school, you get these pictures that are, first of all, have you ever seen like the old, the old, old version of Pinocchio from Disney? Yeah. You know, Pinocchio goes inside the whale. And the whale is this like big cavernous thing. where they have got like floating furniture and that kind of stuff around. <laughs> and that's kind of the picture I grew up with Jonah, right? But as I'm thinking about this, first of all, this is a story a lot of people struggle with because well, how's that even possible? This has got to be parable. This has got to be allegory. It's got to be something other than, fi- than reality because this doesn't happen, right? It's not natural. People don't get swallowed by fish and live. It doesn't work that way. How do they breathe? How do they eat? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. It says God prepared a fish, which means there's something different about this fish. Some weird mutation? I don't know. I I really don't know. But Jonah gets inside this fish, and he's praying from inside this fish. And I suspect it's not this big cavernous opening. In fact, I think if you're claustrophobic, it's going to make you scream. It's going to be tight. It's going to be dark. It's going to be uncomfortable. If he's in a stomach, there's going to be stomach acid that's kind of eating at him. It's going to smell. It's going to be difficult to breathe. Not going to be easy. It's, gonna be t- it's going to be hell. And he knows it. To him, it's the place of the dead. It's Sheol. He's in the grave. But he's still alive. And so he calls to God. He's praying to God, thinking, God has saved me. Even though I'm in Sheol, which means God's got still an intention for me. He says, I haven't clung to worthless idols. And I promise with, with a song of thanksgiving, we'll sacrifice to you. What I vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. He's trusting, even though he's still in the belly of the fish. This odd deliverance that he's gotten is going to continue in some way that he's going to see salvation. God speaks to the fish, which, get this, the wind has obeyed him. The fish has obeyed him. The sailors have responded to God. Jonah, the prophet of God, not doing so well. So he speaks to the fish, and the fish vomits him onto the ground. I don't know how how close he was to the shore, so I don't know what that looks like, but it's a nasty picture either way the prophet of God being vomited from this beast onto the ground. And he's happy about it. <laughs> he's saved. He's lying in a puddle of puke, and he's, he's alive. <laughs> now, some commentators uh, have said in the past that, well, we think there might be maybe a gap, maybe he goes back to Jerusalem. The way I read this text, it doesn't seem that way to me at all. Now, I'm not the expert, but it seems that it's after he's out of the fish, he recognizes his salvation. And then God does something remarkable. Because if I'm right, when Jonah left early, he's thinking he's disqualified as a prophet. So he's saved. He's still disqualified from going to Nineveh. And God comes a second time. 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh so he's staying faithful his attitude hasn't changed I didn't want to go to Nineveh I'm going to obey you God but I don't want to go to Nineveh he's staying faithful to what God said God's saying you're not disqualified what I called you to do you still got to do get going So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Some people wrestle with that because in modern archaeology, they say, well, it's only, uh, and I'm forgetting that moment, the exact size, it doesn't take three days to walk across this city in terms of the circumference. It's like uh, six miles or something like that. It's not that big that it should take three days. <laughs> but it takes three days. So, you know, it's funny, I was thinking... I remember uh, I went once to Disneyland. Disneyland's not that big in a sense in terms of property, but you could easily spend three days there (laughs) and not get to everything, or maybe not everything. But there's a lot to see, so there's a lot of things that can take up your time. Nineveh, I'm pretty sure, is the same way. There's no Disneyland. (laughs) But but there's a lot to take up your time, and there's a lot of people, and there's a lot that's going on. So three days is very reasonable. He goes to Nineveh. And says what God gave him to say. Uh, on the first day, Jonah started into the He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. That's his message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. I think that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words. He's not putting a lot into this, really. <laughs> He's given the, the, the bare minimum. <laughs> He's still kicking and fighting with us. He's being obedient. It's still his terms, really. Uh, When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them, everyone, call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and let their violent or, and turn. Sorry, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and, with compassion, turn from his fierce anger, so that we will not perish. Now, when Jonah says his message, it's forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. There's nothing really in that in itself to indicate that they're gonna be saved. There's nothing even in that really to indicate that you you got a chance here. It's 40 more days, you're gonna be wiped out. The king, and again, this is a, a polytheistic society, so they've got lots of gods. This is another god, and what may have happened, it doesn't say here, but what may have happened is they may have used their whatever methods Uh, sometimes they would like use different omens and stuff, looking at livers and stuff to confirm it, right? And if it was ever confirmed, then they know this is credible and they respond. There's no real reason for this guy to show up from this distance away. There's no real motivation other than to believe that he's actually believing what his message, his own message, right? There's no political motive. So we got to at least look at what this guy is saying. Something happens and the king takes it seriously. The king, on behalf of his people, issues a proclamation. Okay, we, we, let's take it seriously here. Let's fast. Fasting was not necessarily common with the Syrians. So they may have looked at, okay, well, this guy is a Jewish guy. His God likes fasting. Let's do that. Let's try to appease this God. Right? So that's what they do they fast. In fact, they fast and they get their animals, their cattle, to fast. They put sackcloth on, and they put sackcloth on their cattle. 3 verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from the evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. He doesn't even tell them what the evil ways are. they are responding in the very basic way that they can. But they're responding. On the very limited information they have, they respond, and God sees that. And again, a major theme throughout this book is God's grace, his desire, his willingness to extend grace. Grace that he extends grace to this people. Four of us went, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, "O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? So whether I said to God or in his head, I don't know. But, and that is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity, now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. I think he's the first prophet of God who tries to use God's attributes against them. <laughs> instead of a derogatory for, I knew you are going to be merciful. Uh, to the point where, he's like I said, he's justice-oriented. In itself, it's not a bad thing, but... When all of a sudden God's showing mercy to these people who don't deserve it, it's throwing his world for a loop. I don't think we're that far. I know I'm not that far different than that. God says do justly. Love mercy. I don't know about you. I see it. I agree to it. I believe it. Yet somehow I sometimes polarize it. Almost into one or the other. I dichotomize it in a way. Where it's, I can't be merciful because then I'm not just. But if I'm just, then I can't be merciful. There's no polarization in God that way. It's actually unified in him. That he is completely and wholly just. Completely and wholly just. That's a weird thing for us to wrestle with sometimes because... For instance, it's easy to accept Christ as as the good guy, with no disrespect. Sort of, you know, he's the the loving sort of uh, almost like the beatnik guru kind of thing. Who he'll say the nice things, and we like the image in Revelation where he's like atop the white horse, the blood of his enemies up to his saddle. (laughs) What? How does that fit? How? Jesus loves me, this I know. <laughs> Blood. Love. And Jonah really wrestles with this. He doesn't like it. God, you're supposed to be just. To us. Not to them. Because they're unjust to us. God, you're supposed to be merciful to us. Not to them. They're not merciful to us. What's going on? Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than live. This is a hard thing. Now, it doesn't sound melodramatic, but I really think his world's a bit rocked here. Now, he just traveled over, well, his intention was, go, God's intention was from travel about 500 miles. He goes the other way, the opposite way, directly opposite way, gets in a major storm, life-threatening storm, commits to death, gets thrown into the sea to die, gets swallowed by a fish, stays in this fish with no real promise of ever getting out, gets vomited out. I don't know what that experience is like. I can't imagine that being too pleasant. travels the rest whatever, I don't know where the fish deposited him, but from that point he travels all the way to the city that he doesn't want to go to the people he doesn't want to serve to give a message he doesn't want to give and I'm pretty sure along the way he's still hoping that when he gives his message they'll respond the way he wants them to respond and get what he wants them to get and they don't so he's gone through a lot. <laughs> and God doesn't do what he wants him to do. He knows God. He's in a relationship with God. He's not getting what he expects from God. What's going on? But the Lord replied, "Have you any right to be angry?" You know our God is extremely kind. doesn't yell at Jonah he doesn't punish Jonah he asks a simple question have you any right to be angry Jonah went out verse 5 chapter 4 Jonah went out and sat down at the place east of the city there he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city He's waiting. But the Lord God provided a vine. Or sorry, then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Again, he's growing faint, just like he was in the whale. It's an idea that he's kind of sort of close to death again in that way. He grew faint. He wanted to die. He said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. The enemies of God are getting mercy. The prophet of God It's not doing so well. His world is upside down at the moment. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. You know, from what I understand, We'll finish off this verse here. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. I think some translations say pity, and the word there, if I understand right, and if I'm saying it right, is hus, or hus, or however you say it. Sometimes I don't do English so well, so I can't expect to do Hebrew so well. (laughs) uh, And it's that the eyes are with tears. He's actually concerned about this vine. He liked the vine. The vine is dead. You gave me a vine. It died. And now things are worse. The Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? You know, God's bringing Jonah in line with him throughout this story. It's fascinating because he's multitasking. He's multitasking. Sometimes we think when God calls us to minister to someone, it's either about us or them. It can be both. God's not only working on the one being ministered to, he's working on the minister. And anyone actually associated with. He works on Jonah throughout this whole, Jonah is actually more the focus in a sense than Nineveh. More than the sailors. He's working in Jonah who knows God who loves God, who serves God, who's seen God do great things, but whose heart is still, despite all of this, despite Jonah's even recognition, his heart is not in line with God's. And God loves Jonah. And is working in this whole process to get Jonah's heart in line with his. And it's a hard and difficult thing for Jonah. And to be honest, I think it'd be hard and difficult for any of us. And he sends this vine. I haven't read a this, so I, I could be way off. But I, see, I saw a picture with it. Because God uses pictures to communicate things. He does it time and again throughout the, the Bible. And sometimes these people will see the, the, the surface connection and they'll miss the greater picture. He sends this vine. You know, God planted a garden in Eden. And the snake came and tried to chew at the root though it wasn't the root. Jesus would say later, I'm the true vine. But the devil tried to kill it at the source, at the root. God cares for the vine. He cares for the people. The people that came from Adam and Eve, the root, that the worm tried to chew, God cares for them. For the Jews, for Nineveh, the Gentiles. By the way, we're Gentiles. (laughs) If it wasn't for people like Jonah, or Paul, or people that reached out to us, the other part of that vine is that God's extending his grace to Jonah in that moment. The picture in the, in the Old Testament of shade sometimes is of grace, and he extends grace to Jonah. And Jonah's happy with that grace, happy to receive that grace. And when that is removed, he's angry enough to die. We plead, God, give me mercy and avenge me of my enemies. God says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In the New Testament, I believe it's James and John. They come out of a city where Jesus is rejected. And they're angry about this. They love Christ. They're committed to serving him. They love Christ. You've rejected him. Jesus let us call fire down from heaven on them. They've got the right. It's just. Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. God doesn't sacrifice his desire for justice. He has a desire for mercy without losing that. And when you read this, it throws it throws upside down the stories we read of like Sodom and Gomorrah or when the Israelites clear out the land of Israel. Turns it upside down on its head. Why? God was so willing to save the Assyrians. So willing to save this people that didn't deserve it. Who responded in the least that God reacted to. How bad was it that he finally sent judgment to to Sodom and Gomorrah or to the people in Israel? How much did it grieve God if God was so passionate to save these people now? And I suspect he sent Jonah because he knew that if he sent Jonah, they would respond. There was still hope for their response. Because it says God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He has no desire for that. He sent Jesus Christ, who broke the chains of death, to give us life. God takes no pleasure in death. Death is considered an enemy. I don't mind you at times has been God grant me mercy and avenge me of my enemy. And it's a righteous thing to, to call for. It's a right thing to call for. but it's not always in line with the heart of God. He has a a bigger perspective in this sense. Does it diminish his righteousness? Not at all. Again, who are we fighting against? Who is our real enemy? Who is it that's against us? It's generally not our neighbors, even though we don't like them whether against us in some way, even our actual enemies. There's a bigger picture here. God was so willing to forgive a people to at least give mercy to an undeserving, brutal, wicked people What do we do with the fact that God loves our enemies? What about the people who irritate or annoy us? What about the Christians, ministries who do things differently than us? What do we do with that God loves us and everyone around us? We mute love a lot. We've become numb to it because we hear it so often or we take it in different ways or we redefine it through our culture and stuff. It doesn't change with God. And he is actively pursuing you and every single person around you, wherever you are. Whether you like them or not, whether you hate them or not, whether everything in their life is wicked and evil, And just an offense to you and who you are. God loves them and is deeply committed to pursuing them. And if they will respond in any way, it may not be your standard of responding, by the way. They didn't Nineveh did not respond the way Moses asked them to respond necessarily. It doesn't even say that they accepted God as God and gave up all their other gods. The whole city didn't get saved. In not many years longer, they would be judged. In Nahum, it talks about the wrath that comes on Nineveh and stuff. And eventually, it does get wiped out in history. But this time a people that responds through a limited response in the way doing the best... Realistically, the best they have with what they have. Remember, God says, to whom much is given, much is required. So John's got a little bit more, a lot more than what they know. But they respond with what they got, and God sees it. To the point where in the very end, Verse 11. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and many cattle as well. Isn't that an odd thing for God to say? Many cattle. But did you see what happened in Nineveh? They made their animals fast and covered them with sackcloth. It wasn't what God asked them to do? It wasn't what they were required to do? They're doing what they can to respond, and God notices. They're cattle. And God notices their concerns. God notices the details of even your enemy's lives, enemy's concerns. See, God is God. He's not conflicted in emotions. He's not a dichotomy. The same God of justice passionately desires to extend mercy to you, to you, to each one of you, every one of you, to extend, he desires to extend mercy to you and to the people around you. Whoever they are, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, he desires to extend mercy. Make no mistake, he is a God of justice. His wrath is holy and awesome and terrifying. In the end, when he decides it's the end, those that have rejected him, which I believe he's given, will have given every opportunity in whatever way to respond, they will receive his wrath if they've rejected Christ. Christ is the only way. Make no mistake here, this isn't some kind of universal gospel here, I'm talking. This is not all paths lead to God or you just respond in whatever way you feel like. I'm saying God notices the response. God responds to those that are intentional to him. But there is only one way to salvation. And that's through Jesus Christ. God desires so much to extend mercy. The question that remains, there's no answer at the end of Jonah in terms of Jonah's response but leaves the reader with a question. Is our heart like Jonah's or like Christ's? Is it like God's or is it like Jonah's? We do need justice to have a sense of our world. It's what God requires of us. But justice belongs to God. He's the one who initiates it. He's the one who's organized it. He's the one who's defined it. Judgment belongs to him. He may appoint people to enact it at times. He gives responsibilities to people. There's requirements. But he is the ultimate. He's God. He makes the decision. Jonah isn't very much different in this sense than the Assyrians, which would really offend Jonah to hear that. This city of Assyrians that are murdering, Jonah sits out the city waiting for them to die. A city, by the way, that's got men, women, children, elderly, disabled. The prophet of God wants them to die, not live. He does not want mercy for these people. They don't deserve it. It Sounds harsh. The Syrians don't have the, the same restriction. They don't know God. They don't have his law. They feel compelled by their God to do what they do. It's the right thing to them. If Jonah was a different mindset, would he be any different? I don't know. Is our heart like Jonah's or Christ? My heart is a lot more like Jonah's a lot of times. I love God. I get what Jonah's struggling with sometimes. I wrestle with mercy sometimes because it doesn't seem fair sometimes extending mercy to others when they don't deserve it it's, it's not fair you don't know, even when i say that when we say it's not fair i need to add something to that because when we say god it's not fair we accuse god of that's unfair but in Christ, God satisfied all requirements of his justice. Meaning the price your enemy was paid. The sin he has against you ultimately is against God because God's the one who set the standards. The debt that you s- they supposedly owe you is actually owed towards God because they've broken God's law. Now, you may be the victim in that sense. I'm the one that's hurting. But it's God that was sinned against. And guess what? He's willing to forgive them. Are you? What can you, what, honestly, what, what can you require of them? And I know there's stuff we require. I'm not trying to invalidate anyone's injury, anyone's concerned. There are grievous errors done towards people of all types, and they're painful and they're uncomfortable, and there's processes of forgiveness and redemption and change. I get that. But at the heart of it, to change, we have to accept not only what Christ has done for us to receive his forgiveness. We have to accept it for others, too, to extend that same forgiveness. Because if Christ has paid for my sins, am I the only one? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Can you forgive someone else because of what Christ has done for them? That that penalty is paid, that debt that you believe is owed you is paid through Christ. That's a hard thing to do. Am I wrong here? It's a hard thing to do. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call it righteous, but sinners. Matthew 9, verse 12. I'm not exactly sure how to end this. Jonah doesn't leave with an ending, but leaves the reader with a question. So I think that's the same question to leave with us today. Is our heart like God's? Are we, even if it's not, God still comes to us. God still came to Jonah. Right now, and I'm not talking just because of this message. Right now, God is working in your life. working to draw you into deeper relationship with him. Sometimes it's not necessarily a comfortable thing. For Jonah, this was not a comfortable experience. In any way, at any point in this book, Jonah is not in a comfortable thing, though he's growing in relationship with God. This is not an enjoyable experience for Jonah. But Jonah is being used to affect people around him, and at the same time being brought close in a relationship with God. The last point I leave is this. Jonah's disobedience affected people around him. Disobedience does that. Jonah's obedience affected more people. His disobedience affected people. It has an effect his obedience had an even greater effect than the disobedience did. I have no doubt that many of you, if not all of you, hear from God or God has worked in your life, that you know God, that you love God, that you're committed to serving God. I'll take the first, the first one line. I am way more like Jonah in many ways, that I fall short of the glory of God, yet God still comes to save, to extend mercy to you, wherever you are right now, to the person you're struggling with. God wants to extend mercy to them, and he might actually use you as a way of extending his mercy. That's not pleasant sometimes. Are you guys willing? Father, thank you so much for who you are. You are so very unlike us, so very different, yet you've caused us to be born again in Christ. And you are conforming us to the image of your son. You are faithful, you are patient, you are merciful and you are just and you are kind. You see where we are, Lord God. You see the intimate details of our lives and of everyone around us. The people we like, the people we don't like. And the same grace that you extend to us, Lord God, give us grace to see things like you do. To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly before the Lord our God. We thank you for the grace you've given to us, Lord God. In your grace, help us to extend your grace to others. And thank you for loving them. Bless our enemies as well as those that do good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.